Let's pray together. Father, we do confess that you are faithful to us and that every day, every morning, your mercies are new. So, Father, we bless you and we praise you for this. And, Father, we want you to help us now as we open up your word. So open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. We pray that you would establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. My sophomore year in college was one of the most spiritually challenging times of my entire life. I had just experienced a kind of spiritual mountaintop experience during the previous summer, but things kind of bottomed out for me right after that. And I've, for those of you who've heard me share my testimony before, um, you, you know that there were two things that happened that kind of provoked a season of uncertainty about my faith in, in Christ. Uh, the first thing that happened was I had this professor who I loved and admired, but who was also an agnostic. He was very open about his rejection of the Christian faith, and yet he seemed to know the Bible better than anyone I knew, including preachers. And he once gave this really moving lecture that included an exposition of the story of David and Bathsheba in one of our classes at State University, and it was as compelling as any sermon that I had ever heard on that story. And yet, he believed none of it. I believed the Bible to be the word of God that was powerful to change and transform hearts. And yet, here was a man who knew this book better than I did, and yet he was untransformed by it. And it shook me to my core that when, I, when the thought occurred to me that perhaps his untransformed life is evidence that the Bible is not what I thought it was. After all, how could he know it so well and yet dismiss its message? That very same school year, the second thing happened. I had a really close friend from high school who went to an Ivy League school where she had been taking religion classes. And while we were at home on break, um, she would share with me what she was learning in her religion classes, that the Bible was a human book, that many of the letters with Paul's name on them weren't really written by Paul, that the Gospels were not accurate historical portrayals of Jesus's life, but they were written by partisans decades after the fact, and so they're inaccurate. And it shook me to learn that the finest minds in the country had a belief about the Bible that was different than what I had been taught about, about the Bible, that it was the Word of God. They didn't believe that it was a divine revelation, but it was a fallible human revelation. And so those two experiences, they really shook me to my core during my sophomore year, and I felt that I had the rug pulled out from under my faith. If the Bible wasn't true, then Christianity would have to be some kind of an elaborate farce. Because everything that we know about Jesus and the, and the gospel comes from the Bible. I didn't know how to refute the scholars, so, so I, I didn't know what to do. I just began to think of other ways that maybe I could verify the truthfulness of the gospel. And the way that I did that was I became really open to charismatic experiences. And my thought was that if I could just witness or experience some kind of supernatural event, 
then that would be all the verification that I needed. I could do an end run around the skeptics by experiencing firsthand supernatural proofs. And so I was sort of on a little quest. And my quest culminated in a charismatic youth rally that I attended in Dallas, Texas and during my sophomore year. And I thought for sure that at this particular event, that's where I would experience a powerful manifestation of the Spirit. Perhaps maybe seeing somebody be healed or maybe even I would speak in tongues myself. And so some friends and I went to this meeting in Dallas and we attended this meeting. And throughout the weekend, all these people around me at this meeting were having these vivid experiences. Some of them falling on the floor. Some of them were so-called speaking in tongues. Some of them claiming to hear direct revelations from God. And as the Spirit kept falling on all those around me, nothing seemed to be happening to me. I was as open as I knew how to be to all of this, and yet nothing was happening. I went looking for evidence of the Spirit's power, and I didn't find it. Nothing happened to me like was happening, at least what I thought was happening to everybody else. So I was left with this uncomfortable conclusion that either I was a farce as a Christian or that Christianity itself was a farce or maybe both. And I was at a loss to know what to do about it. The Lord eventually dug me out of this spiritual hole that I'd gotten myself into. I was thinking about these things all wrong at that point. But in hindsight, one of the big mistakes that I made was due to a failure to discern how the Spirit works. I was looking for powerful manifestations of the Spirit in charismatic experiences, and yet I really didn't understand what the Bible taught about those experiences. Nor did I understand what the ordinary evidences of the Spirit are. I was looking for assurance in unbiblical places among a people who were evoking unbiblical experiences i now believe so the question i would ask you this morning is, is have you ever done this before have you ever gone looking for evidences of god's power in the wrong place or perhaps in the wrong way have you made demands of the spirit that are not biblical demands of the spirit have you assigned certain phenomena um, the imprimatur of the Spirit when the Spirit had nothing to do with it? Have you ever sought after evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in a way that is foreign to the actual message of Scripture? I want you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. I think there's some evidence in this text, that the Corinthians themselves, may, they had an incorrect perception of how the Spirit works among God's people. And this passage, as I mentioned before, is in a larger section about problems that the Corinthians were experiencing whenever they gathered together for worship. You remember in chapter 11, they were having problems with headship and with the Lord's Supper. Now in chapters 12 through 14, it's clear that they're having some misunderstandings about spiritual manifestations in worship and especially with respect to the gift of tongues. And so in these first 11 verses of chapter 12, Paul's going to explain to the Corinthians what they should be looking for when it comes to manifestations of the Spirit among them. 
He's going to be explaining what they should be looking for. We've we got three things that we're looking for here, three things that he's explaining. Number one, he says you should be looking for a spiritual confession in verses 1 through 3. Two, spiritual diversity in verses 4 through 6. And then three, spiritual gifts in verses 7 through 11. So spiritual confession, spiritual diversity, spiritual gifts. So the first thing is spiritual confession. Everybody look at verse 1. Paul says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Now, you may, you may remember that that little phrase, now concerning, um, those words go all the way back to the first time Paul used it in chapter 7 and verse 1. And in chapter 7 and verse 1, those words introduce the fact that Paul was referring to a letter that he had um, a letter that they had previously written to him. Now concerning the letter, the things about which you wrote, Paul says in chapter 7 and verse 1. It's possible that this phrase, the appearance here, is signaling that he's referring right back to the issues that they had raised in their letter, which means they may have brought up with him this issue of tongues and of spiritual gifts and manifestations in the church. And so he's just answering them at this point because he's perceiving a problem there. At the very least, it signals that Paul is moving on to a new topic, and the, and the topic is in that next phrase, spiritual gifts. Now, spiritual gifts in your translations is actually an interpretive paraphrase because the word for gifts actually doesn't appear yet. Um, although P Paul certainly has those gifts in view when he writes what he does here, literally Paul uses the phrase spiritual things, or he might even say the spirituals, concerning the spirituals. The spiritual things, meaning things that are brought about by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. That's why I gave you in your main points, spiritual confession, spiritual diversity, spiritual gifts. These are all things that are brought about by the presence and power of, of the Holy Spirit. So he's thinking in terms of the, those things which are wrought by the Holy Spirit whenever the church gathers for worship. That would certainly include gifts, but it's, it's more than that. And so Paul's point is simply to accent the Holy Spirit's role in producing the manifestations that the Corinthians were experiencing during their worship gatherings. Paul doesn't want them to be uninformed. Well, uninformed about what? Look at the next verse. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However, you were led. Now, verse 2 is actually not the thing that they were uninformed about. This verse uh, and then this verse, Paul's describing what he thinks is self-evident, both to himself and to the Corinthians. They all know that they were once pagan idol worshipers. That's what they were, by and large. Paul's language here is fascinating because the word translated as pagan is actually just the word for Gentile. That, that's the word that he uses. And Paul says that these Christians, get this, past tense, were Gentiles. That is profound all by itself because it suggests that Paul no longer views them as non-Jews. You were Gentiles. You were pagans. That's significant because previously he said in chapter 6 and verses 9 through 11 that they were idolaters, which means they were Gentiles. If you go back and read in Acts chapter 18, Paul comes into Corinth. He begins preaching in the synagogue. They kick him out. And then the bulk of the people who get saved after that are Gentiles. So we know that this church is primarily ethnically made up of Gentiles, but now Paul's saying you were Gentiles. What does that mean? 
it means that Paul views them as having been grafted into the rich root of Israel. They are now, according to Paul, fellow heirs of the promises made to Abraham. In other words, he treats them as a part of the people of God. And they are the people of God because they've received the Spirit. They are not now what they once were, without hope and without God in the world. They used to worship the unspeaking gods, the mute idols. But now they worship the speaking God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the speaking God inspires certain kinds of speech from his followers. So look at verse 3. This is the part he wants them not to be uninformed about. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit or by the Holy Spirit. So notice this. The first mark of the Spirit's presence among his people is not the ability to speak in a tongue or to speak prophecy. The first mark of the Spirit's presence is what a person confesses about Jesus. We don't have any evidence that anybody in Corinth at this point was actually saying Jesus is accursed. It's, it's more likely that Paul is speaking hypothetically about this, about the kinds of things that the Spirit does not inspire people to say. If someone is in any way denigrating Jesus, that is not coming from the Holy Spirit. Okay, the Spirit, his whole point is to point people to Jesus, is to make much of Jesus. And if somebody's denigrating Jesus, that's not coming from the Spirit. But when someone confesses Jesus is Lord, that can only happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. And of course, Paul has in view here an authentic confession of Jesus Christ as Lord, not a false confession. It's a confession of the mouth that matches the attitude of the heart. It's what Paul talks about in Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That kind of confession is the fundamental evidence that the Spirit is present. That's what we're looking for as the primary evidence of the mark of the Spirit among us. Because you don't say that kind of thing if the Spirit's not there. At least you don't say it and mean it. That's the great miracle that happens here. If, the, if this is true, there are at least two very important implications for all of us. The first thing is this. For all those people who exult in spiritual gifts, like in this text, they were exulting in the gift of tongues, we find out, and the gift of prophecy. Those who exult in spiritual gifts, such as tongues or prophecy, should not suppose that others in the congregation who lack such gifts are somehow strangers to the Spirit. Most Christians do not have such gifts, but that does not mean that they lack the Spirit. And the evidence of that is the very fact that those ordinary Christians, that the ordinary Christians confess Jesus as Lord. Where that confession exists, so also does the Spirit of God. Second thing, second implication, is that we have to learn how to be discerning about so-called works of the Spirit that we are encountering. A lot of people making claims that the Spirit's doing this and the Spirit is doing that. 
Turn on your television and look at some of the things people are doing and people are assigning that to the Spirit's work. If you think that the evidence of the Spirit consists mainly in charismatic experience, like tongues or prophecy or some other manifestation like that, you're not rightly discerning what is central about the Spirit's work in our lives. This is true for both for people of all theological persuasions. Okay, there's, there's cessationists and there are continuationists. I'm going to explain what those words mean here in a little bit. Some people believe the gifts as they were operating in the first century still operate today. They're called continuationists. Some people are cessationists. They believe those gifts have ceased. I don't care what your view is on this. Whatever your view is on that question, no matter what your view is on the continuation of such gifts, they are simply not the main evidence of the Spirit's work, either then or now. Regeneration is the primary evidence of the Spirit's work. A transformed, holy life is the primary evidence. You can fake tongues. You cannot fake a holy life. You cannot fake the new birth. So he's saying here in verses 1 through 3 that this evidence of the Spirit is this spiritual confession. Okay, it's a confession of Christ wrought by the Spirit. The second thing, though, he says the Spirit brings about spiritual diversity. Verses 4 through 6. Look at verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in every one. Now, notice that these three verses are accenting diversity. Paul says that there are a varieties of gifts, service, and activities. Verse 4 gives us the first reference to the gifts, where he uses the word for gifts in this passage, and it does so with a word that indicates that they are gifts of God's grace. That's what the, the word means. But nevertheless, these three terms, gifts, services, activities, we, we probably sh uh, should not sharply distinguish those um, different words from one another. He's, he's roughly referring to the same thing by those three different terms. He's referring to the spiritual manifestations that are happening within the congregation. And he's trying to emphasize that the diversity of such gifts uh, of the Spirit are coming from God. But even though spiritual manifestations may themselves be diverse, you have all different kinds of manifestations in the congregation, he also wishes to show that the source of those manifestations is not diverse. These manifestations all come from one single source. So look how he says it. There are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who is empowering all of these things. So notice that Paul, this is really important, and it's so rich right here, because Paul identifies the source of the gifts with Trinitarian language. Spirit, right, in, the, in verse 4, that's obviously referring to the Holy Spirit. Lord, when Paul uses the word Lord, who's he usually referring to? <coughs> You know who it is? It's Jesus, right? Um, when it comes to certain things, he says, I have no word to you from the Lord. He's talking about the Lord Jesus. Um, when, he, when Paul wants to refer to God, the Father, 
he uses the word, just the word theos. So notice he uses the word spirit, Lord, and God. That's a reference to the Trinity. So even though Paul is writing this hundreds of years before the doctrine of the Trinity was hammered out at the Council of, at the, at the council of Nicaea, Paul is nevertheless experiencing God as a Trinity. Spirit, Lord, and God do not refer to three different beings. On the contrary, they all refer to the one deity. And we know that because verse 6 says, but it is the same God who empowers them all in every one. Did you get that? Spirit, Lord, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the same God, three persons, one deity. The gifts are many, but the source is one. God the Spirit, God the Son, and God the Father. It is the same God who empowers them all. And so there is unity and diversity in our Trinitarian understanding of God. Likewise, there is unity and diversity in His gifts to us. That means that if we value the work of the Spirit among us, then we must value diversity in His work among us. You see that? We are not all the same. And it's that way by divine design. You know, in this church, I personally feel like a bit of a one-trick pony because I can teach the Bible. And then after that, I feel like my aptitudes start dropping off considerably. I know for a fact that there are folks in this church who are much better administrators than I am. There are folks in this church who are much better encouragers than I am. There are folks in this church who are much better at discerning than I am. There are, there are people in this church who are much better evangelists than, than I am. Just a few weeks ago, some of us went out into the neighborhoods to knock on doors for evangelism, and it was, it was a youth event, and so some of us parents were out there with our kiddos handing out school supplies, trying to engage our neighbors in conversation. Mike Franz is out there with us, and he was running circles around the rest of us, or at least I thought he was running circles around me in terms of his evangelistic engagement with the people in the neighborhood. He just never meets a stranger. He gets on with everybody. And at one point, he was talking to some college students, some UofL students who had a house uh, near the church. They're out in the yard cleaning up beer cans. Mike walks up to him and says, hey, I know what y'all are doing. I've done that myself a lot. And if you know Mike's testimony, he was, he was, he was right on board with where they were. And he just he starts right in with them, and, and he just launches in and just connects with those guys. We had to keep going because he's, he's, he's connecting with those guys. Now, do you think I begrudge Mike because of his gifting in this? Of course not. In fact, I've learned that I depend on Mike and the other evangelists in our congregation. I learn from them. So you see how our diversity is a source of strength and growth for us. If everybody in our church were like me, our church would die. Okay? We need the diversity because we need each other. We strengthen one another. We equip one another. And so he is saying there are a variety of gifts. And he's going to end up saying later that we're not going to despise anyone because of what gift they have. So we celebrate diversity of giftings in this church. In fact, that's Paul's main point in the second half of this chapter, which we'll do um, the next time I'm up preaching. We need each other more than we know. And we rejoice in the variety of giftings, even as we recognize that this diversity comes from the same source, 
God. God is the one working in us and through us powerfully for strengthening of the strengthening of the body, for making disciples of every nation for the glory of God. So the Spirit is inspiring a certain kind of spiritual confession. He's inspiring spiritual diversity of gifts among us. And then finally, excuse me, a spiritual diversity among us. And then finally, he's inspiring spiritual gifts among us in verses 7 through 11. Everybody look at verse 7. Paul says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now, the manifestation of the Spirit, I think, is a, is a catch-all term for the variety of powerful works that are accomplished by the Spirit among His people. He's going to give us a list of those here in a minute. But notice that he says that God gives each person in the congregation some sort of spiritual endowment. Nobody is left out of this within the congregation. All of us partake in some gifting of the Spirit. Paul says that the purpose of the gifting is not for your own private enjoyment. The gifts are not for building yourself up, although that may happen. Paul says the gifts are given for the common good, which means that God has given these gifts for the edification of the body of Christ. That's the purpose of the gifts. If you miss that, then you miss God's design in giving these gifts in the first place. And you might even abuse those gifts, as we're going to see the Corinthians were doing with the, gifts, with the gift of tongues. So everybody look at verse 8. So each one is going to be given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. Now, there are nine different gifts that appear in this list. And when people read this list, they are sometimes tempted to treat the list like it's some kind of a systematic treatment uh, on spiritual gifts. But that's not at all what Paul is doing here. He's not trying to define and catalog all the spiritual gifts. That may be our question, but that's not the question that Paul's answering. And we know that because Paul has six other gift lists in this section of Scripture. Some in chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14. He, he lists some different gifts. And guess what? Um, no two of those lists are alike. <laughs> They're different from each other. So, for example, there are some gifts here, the list we're looking at, that don't appear in the list at the end of this chapter. And there are some gifts at the end of this chapter that don't appear in the list that we're looking at right now. So this is not intended to be an exhausted, uh, exhaustive list of gifts. I don't think any of the gifts listed elsewhere in the Bible are intended to be an exhaustive gifts, uh, list of gifts. That's just not how these lists are working. There have been numerous attempts, though, to classify the gifts in this particular list. And, and one of those, maybe you've heard some of these attempts to classify these, and one of them goes like this. Like, they'll try to classify the gifts into categories. So you have gifts of instruction, gifts of supernatural power, and then gifts of inspired utterance. 
Gifts of instruction would be like word of wisdom, word of knowledge. Gifts of supernatural power would be like faith, healings, and miracles. Gifts of inspired utterance would be prophecy and tongues and that kind of a thing. Some, so some people try to classify these gifts based on these sort of artificial categories. But, but I think that, this, that that's not at all the way that we're supposed to be uh, approaching this. Um, this list reflects a desire. When, when people read that way, I think we're reading our own issues into the text. We're not reading out of the text. Paul's not trying to group the gifts into categories like that. That's not what he's concerned about. Rather, Paul groups these gifts according to his pastoral purpose. And he gives us a linguistic clue that unfortunately is impossible to see in English, but it's really clear to see in Greek. And so I'm just going to tell you what it is and then just take my word for it. Um, But he introduces the list of nine gifts by using the word another. Did you notice that? Um, to one is given this gift, to another that gift, to another that gift, and so on. But in the original, he uses a different word for another after the first two gifts and before the last two gifts. So after the first two gifts and before the last two gifts, he uses a different word for another, which makes it look like he's marking off the first two gifts and the last two gifts like bookends around the middle five gifts. The bookends are actually addressing the issues that the Corinthians are having problems with. So look at the first two gifts. Look at the the last two gifts. You can tell that these are themes that he's already addressed previously in the first two gifts. And in the last two gifts, they're a theme that he's going to address for the rest of the uh, next three chapters. And then the five gifts in the middle are more or less random list of gifts that have as their common denominator a supernatural endowment of some kind. And so he's bracketing, it's like bookends. And the bookends are the point that he wants you to to look at. So what's his aim here? He's trying to correct the Corinthians for being puffed up and to emphasize that the one spirit causes the diversity of all these gifts. And to introduce, he wants to introduce the one gift that they're having a big problem with. And that one gift is at the end of the list, tongues and interpretation of tongues. So let me walk through the list and try to explain this to you. I'm going to do my best to define these gifts based on context. But just notice, Paul doesn't define each of these in so many words. So you've got to be attentive to context to to get this. But let's just walk through these, and we'll try to get our our, uh, minds around it. The first one here is the utterance of wisdom, sometimes translated the word of wisdom. Now, let me ask you, has Paul talked about the theme of wisdom yet in this book? Yes, he has. Has he talked about a message of wisdom in this book. Yes, he has. You remember he rebuked the Corinthians because they were exulting in human wisdom, weren't they? The wisdom of the philosophers, the wisdom, the wisdom of the wise men of this age. He had to rebuke them for exulting in that and saying they need to embrace the wisdom of God, which is the message of Christ. You remember that in chapter one? So um, the word of wisdom should be read in that context. And he wants them to see that Christ crucified is the wisdom of God. Do you remember that? He's the wisdom of God. And so the word of wisdom then is a proclamation, I believe, of Christ crucified. If you're reading it in context of chapter 1. What about the word of knowledge or the utterance of knowledge? That's probably parallel with word of wisdom. But has Paul had to talk to them about their issues with knowledge up until this point? You know that he has in chapter 8. Remember, they were boasting that we all have knowledge. 
He quoted them. You're all saying we all have knowledge. But you remember their, their problem with knowledge was that their knowledge was puffing up. And he was telling them they need to love. But they're having problems not with just wisdom, but also with these, um, not, this knowledge. And probably when he quoted them saying we all have knowledge, that was probably a word of knowledge right there. Or at least some of the things they were saying about creation, that there's no such thing as an idol in the world, there's no God but one. Remember, those are true things they were saying, but they were probably considered words of knowledge at that point. So um, what is a word of knowledge? I think it's just a proclamation of Christian truth. It's a proclamation of Christian truth. They were having problems with it because they were puffing up in it. Um, look at... Um, well, one thing we should say about that is that Paul's implicit message here by bringing these up again is he's saying that they don't have any right to be puffed up about these things. Same thing for us. We don't have any right to be puffed up about any of the gifts. We're not the fountain of wisdom and knowledge. God is. Because what does he say about word of wisdom and word of knowledge? Where do they get those gifts from? From God. So it's, a, it's another implicit call to, to humility on those, on those grounds. The gift of faith, this is not the faith that leads to salvation. The Bible speaks of faith that justifies, but then the Bible also speaks about the faith that moves mountains. Chapter 13 and verse 2, if I have all faith to move mountains. Or James chapter 5 and verse 15, the prayer of faith. Prayer, the prayer of faith um, can accomplish great feats and miracles. So faith here is a supernatural conviction that God will reveal his power or mercy in a special way in a specific instance. It's a spiritual endowment of believing God for a certain thing. Gifts of healings, these are self-explanatory. Um, we've Jesus healed, you know, Paul healed the lame man in Acts chapter 14, somebody who was clearly broken, their body is broken in some way or sick in some way, and there's a supernatural healing that takes place. So it's the ability to bring healing to physical ailments. Working of miracles, literally it's the word works of powers. It's the word for power, but sometimes it's rendered as, as miracles. And this, I think this manifestation most likely covers all other kinds of supernatural activities beyond the healing of the sick. So we just talk about works of gifts of healings, but now he's talking about powers, other supernatural abilities. I think it would include exorcisms, but probably is not exclusive to that, but that's what the works of powers would be. So it's a manifestation of God's power, the effect of which cannot be explained by natural causes. Prophecy. Prophecy is not preaching. It's, prophecy is something else. It's not foretelling the future, but it's foretelling the word of God. Sometimes, if you tell forth the word of God, it might be about the future, but not always. The fundamental um, characteristic of prophecy is that you're speaking God's word. It happened all through the Old Testament, and now we know we have New Testament prophets. And so... Prophecy is communicating revelations from God through the initiative and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps, I think in this context, spontaneous inspirations of the Holy Spirit to do this. The ability to distinguish between spirits in verse 10. This probably has to do with discerning what, what prophecies are coming from the Spirit of God, which ones aren't. I think it's like 1 John 4, 1, where it says to test the spirits which means you test whether or not the spirit speaking a certain truth is the spirit of God or some false spirit. 
Um, Paul talks about in chapter 14 that, that the spirit of prophets are subject to prophets. They had to judge the prophecies within the congregation to make sure that it was lining up with the apostolic revelation that they had been given. And if something didn't line up, then you rejected that prophecy. So um, the ability to distinguish between spirits probably was, was dealing with that. Now he gets to tongues, various kinds of tongues. This is the ability, um, well, it's the ability by the Spirit to speak in a language that you don't know. Now, to identify what this means, we have to answer a couple of questions. What's the nature of the language being spoken and what's the content of what's being spoken? Now, when it comes to the nature of the language being spoken, the question is, is it a human language, a heavenly language, or just some sort of free vocalization that's, that's going on? Is that what they were doing in Corinth? Well, because these tongues can be interpreted, that's the very next gift, right? Paul talks about interpretation all through chapter 14. Because they can be interpreted, we know it's not free vocalization. I'm making a point of this because you get out there in some, what some churches and ministries are doing, and they're basically encouraging free vocalization, uh, meaningless words and syllables. That's not what he's talking about here. The words, whatever they were, had meanings that could be interpreted and translated to the, to the hearers. So it's not free vocalization or meaningless repetition of syllables. So that leaves us with the question whether the, gifts of, the gift of tongues is some sort of heavenly language or a natural human language. And some people have noticed Paul's reference to the tongues of angels in the very next chapter, in verse 1, as evidence that he's talking about that the gift of tongues is some kind of a heavenly language. This is a mistake. I'll, I'll try to explain more clearly when we get to chapter 13, but the tongues of angels in chapter 13, verse 1, is a kind of hyperbole on Paul's part. It's not a statement of something that actually anyone is doing. Um, the most natural background to understanding the gift of tongues is not to be found in some ancient non-biblical book or in the ecstatic speech of the mystery religions. Rather, our background for tongues is the book of Acts, and in particular, Acts chapter 2, where we read that the gift of tongues is the gift of speaking in human languages, where people heard believers speaking in languages that they didn't know, and they were doing it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, verses 4 to 6. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then verse 6, And at this the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak. Hearing them speak, they spoke in his own language. If you take Acts as the background, then you know that this wasn't gibberish. Acts says that they heard God's people bearing witness to the mighty works of God, it says in Acts 2, verse 11. They were saying something in human languages. In 1 Corinthians 14, 2, Paul says that the tongues speaker communicates mysteries. And a mystery is, is Paul's way of referring to the gospel, something that was once unrevealed, now disclosed. The tongue speaker is communicating gospel mysteries. So if you want to define tongues, tongues uh, is referring to this. It's the supernatural ability to speak a human language for the purpose of revealing gospel mysteries. It's the supernatural ability to speak a human language for the purpose of revealing gospel mysteries. Now, the last gift in the list, the interpretation of tongues. 
It's just to translate what a tongue speaker has, been, has spoken. So it's the supernatural ability to translate the foreign language being spoken by a person who has the gift of tongues. Now, notice I said this list of nine lifts, gifts is like, they're like bookends, right? They were having problems with wisdom and knowledge, the first two gifts. Paul marks those off. They're having problems now with these last two gifts, tongues and interpretation of tongues. We're not going to be able to go into Paul's whole exposition about this this week. This will be in subsequent weeks where we'll talk about his full consideration of the problems they were having with in their worship service with tongues. But all of these gifts or, or manifestations of the Spirit, they are that because they're all endowments that enable a person to do what he or she could not otherwise do apart from a divine miracle. And then verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now, we're, we're going to talk more about the issues that they were having in particular in their congregation. But the, the question that I want to address before we close is whether we should be expecting to see all of the gifts in this list in our congregation today. And in particular, whether or not the revelatory gifts like prophecy, um, tongues, interpretation of tongues, should we be expecting to see all of these gifts operating today just like they did at the time of the apostles, like when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians? Now, I mentioned earlier there's two points of view on this. One view is called cessationism, and the other is called continuationism. The cessationists believe that the gifts have ceased to function like they did in the first century. The continuationists think that they go on just as they did in the first century. So the continuationists argue that these gifts do continue today, and we should be practicing them. So charismatics, Pentecostals, that's the point of view that they hold to, and they read their Bibles and they see tongues and prophecy in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, and they see it in uh, Acts, you know, throughout the book of Acts, and they say, why aren't we trying to experience the presence and power of the Spirit like we see it experienced in the New Testament? And it's a powerful case because there's a strong face value case for it just by reading Acts and by reading 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. But I think there's more to it than that because I, th I think the cessationists have the better side of this argument because the cessationists argue that that's an incorrect reading of Scripture. Cessationists argue that while God does indeed still perform miracles, he's not granting new revelation to his people. And this is the point of view that I and the majority of the, the, the elders hold. And we do so for, for a number of reasons. And let me just quickly give you this. Just a, a quick uh, rundown for, of why we, we would hold this. I want you to notice that, when, that a translated tongue is the functional equivalent of prophecy. We'll see this more clearly when we get to chapter 14, but they're both spirit-inspired utterances. One of them is just in a language you understand and the other is in a language you don't understand. But the translated tongue is the functional equivalent of, of, of prophecy. That means whatever we conclude about prophecy will also go for tongues, okay? Notice also that the gifts of apostleship and prophecy are tied together in the New Testament. Um, and they seem to have a certain priority in the various gift lists. So if you look at the end of chapter 12, for instance, uh, even at the end of this chapter, Paul says that God has appointed first apostles for the church and then prophets. 
apostles and prophets are together and they stand at the head of the list, almost like they're over the other gifts. And there's a reason for that. Third thing I'd say is that the apostles, as the apostles go, so the prophets go. Because they are often held together like that, what's true of the one is going to be true of the other. Does the gift of apostleship still exist today? It does not. Because you have to be an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus to be an apostle. The eyewitnesses passed away as the, uh, with the first century. And so the gift of apostleship passed away with the end of the first century. Because there are no more apostles among us. So the founding generation of Christianity saw the close of the gift of apostleship. That's not very controversial. Um, most people agree with that. But that shouldn't surprise us that that's true because Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20 that the church is built on the foundation of what? The apostles and prophets. They're together there again. And Paul says that they're both foundational to the church. As if a foundation has been laid that we don't want to lay anything else down uh, next to it. In fact, Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 3 about there is no other foundation except for the one that's already been, been laid. So they, the apostles and prophets provided the initial deposit of truth for the church, but we don't have anyone doing that today anymore because that work is finished. Because we have God's perfect revelation recorded for us in his word, but we don't have ongoing revelation like the apostles were giving and the, and the prophets were giving. We believe that the church was built on a foundation that is set and that is secure. It's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Ephesians 2.20. Because prophecy and tongues are foundational gifts, and because that gift of apostleship no longer exists, I think that we can know that the same is true for other revelatory gifts like, like tongues and, and so forth. Those don't continue anymore because the foundation is, is laid. There's so much more to say about this. I'm happy to talk about it uh, with you later if, if you'd like um, after we're finished. So that's why we don't practice those gifts in our church. But having said that, we do nevertheless expect God to work powerfully among us through his Holy Spirit. The, the, the debate between cessationists and continuationists is not a debate about whether or not God still does miracles. It's just not. If, if you're a Christian, you have to believe that God still works miracles. And we are expectant that God does mighty things among us. When people get sick, we pray for supernatural healing. And sometimes we witness that. When someone's kid is a hard case sinner, we pray for supernatural regeneration by the Holy Spirit. When someone is trapped under a dark cloud of depression, we pray in the name of Jesus for the cloud to lift. We implore God and wait for him to show his power among us. If we're not doing that, then we're not being biblical Christians. So the debate here is not about whether or not God still does miracles. He does. We must believe that. The question is whether or not he's still giving ongoing revelation. And we would urge that he does not. We have been given the foundation in the apostles and prophets and that record of that is given to us in this perfect book. And we are not trying to add to it. There is so much more to say on this, but I must end there. Let me pray. Father, I do pray you would use your word to challenge and to change your people. 
I pray for any who are here who don't know you, who don't know what the message of the cross is all about. I pray that you would help them to see that Jesus Christ was crucified and raised for sinners and that if they would but believe and repent, they could be saved. Father, I pray that all of us would be transformed by the renewing of our minds as we submit to your holy word. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.